even on okay so I'm back again I'm back kind of quickly especially compared to the pace I had prior but current events inspired this one today as well and the current events actually kind of goes along with my last podcast about late-term abortion it deals with Virginia governor Ralph Northam but in a little bit of a different way because it had a, a turn of events over the last couple of days. And so just to kind of give you a quick chronology of like what happened with Virginia Governor Northam, uh, on Wednesday, January 31st, he appeared on a radio to answer questions about a bill that he was supporting in the Virginia State House. And it was about late-term abortion. He confirmed that the bill would allow for the possibility of termination even after the baby was born alive. So the baby's born alive, and under certain circumstances, you know, they could take the life of the baby. So really, this caused an uproar more with conservatives, you know, than, than anything, obviously. And it was dismissed by liberals and other mainstream media, and dismissed more in the sense of, oh, you know, you took it out of context. You, you blew that out of proportion. Then... Friday morning, February 1st, a conservative news website posted Governor Northam's college yearbook page that featured a racist photo. And this photo had someone in blackface standing next to someone with a KKK outfit on with a hood. So the person in blackface, you could not really tell who that is. And obviously the person with the hood on, you, you can't tell either. But the yearbook has his name below the caption in a caption of the photo so to this day which is just monday we still don't know but this photo was taken back in 1984 a different time now i want to share with you one of my favorite ideas that comes from a quote from lp hartley he starts out one of his books and he says the past is a foreign country they do things differently there when we look back into the past, like we're doing now, we have to keep that in mind. It is a foreign country <laughs> and it, they do things differently. Anyways, Friday, Friday evening, the Virginia Legislative Black Caucus and Democratic leaders were calling on Northam to resign. So by Saturday morning, Republicans and liberal advocacy groups were also joined in on the dogpile. And it makes me just kind of wonder, are we addicted to the rush of feeling of outrage and then shaming people? I'm not quite sure. I'm still thinking about that one. But I will not really go down the path about like the fact that I find it much more strange that people were outraged by a 1984 picture than they were outraged by the governor believing it to be okay. By the way, the governor's a doctor, but believing it to be okay that in some circumstances, they can take the life of a baby born alive. So, you know, my last podcast was actually on this topic, and I won't really continue that for this one. I had to throw it out there that I do find that odd. But anyways, the outrage and condemnation over past sins, if you will, 
is really what I want to focus on today. It is something that I have been thinking about for a while because stuff like this isn't the first time this has happened. So here are my two thoughts on this. Number one, usually like the swift call to denounce and then discard somebody, um, they're really speaking to a certain voting block when it comes to this. That's my cynical viewpoint. And then number two, which is a little bit different than my cynical viewpoint, is that I believe in looking for a path to redemption, okay, that we can kind of count on. So my idea, my redemption of our social credit, your social credit, should be seven years, roughly, give or take. So first, the swift call to denounce and then discard somebody. We saw this especially with Donald Trump in the primaries, and that was understandable because he made it very easy to, for people to go, yeah, we should treat him this way. We also saw it really with Brett Kavanaugh, and that one was a little bit outrageous. And I actually did talk about this in a previous podcast as well. Um, so I w won't really go down that path. But for both Donald Trump, Brett Kavanaugh, there was an overall theme, especially when it comes to it's directed to towards women. And they wanted women, right, to find certain behaviors so outrageous and appalling that they just could not support Republicans or vote, you know, namely, you know, like Donald Trump. They just could not vote for him. And we did see that in 2016, what did help Donald Trump in, in the election was that conservative women did decide to vote for him. Um, and really that third debate with the late term abortion debate really is what kind of clinched it and amazingly because they had the Supreme Court on their minds when it, when it came to that. So ironically, that's what helped Donald Trump get the conservative woman vote, even though he still had a big spread in that women vote compared to Hillary Clinton, what she got. So anyways, the fierce reaction, right, to this 1984 photo was quickly denounced as racist um, by the governor that he was a racist back when he was in college. And so here's my theory of like, why this is like happening, especially with him. It's it's my theory for the 2020 presidential election because this seems so. He's a he's a new Virginia governor, state governor. So it's like, what is going on? Why is this gaining so much traction and attention? And and this is why I think it is. My here's my cynical theory. You will hear more racism accusations thrown at President Trump, and more condemnations by the left of their own people who step out of bounds because they believe they're losing the black vote. So there have been a couple things in Donald Trump's favor uh, lately that just, of course, isn't really covered much by the mainstream media, in my opinion, because they just they really just don't like him. And, they, and any favorable coverage looks like it will only help him, his favorability ratings, which will only then help re-election. And people just don't want that. So anyways, the passage of the bipartisan, for, it's called First Step Act, which is prison reform, is really seen as a huge positive to the Trump administration. This is something that President Obama couldn't get done. But in fairness to him, Republicans were not willing at all to really talk about it. And 
here they were much more willing. And then, of course, you could get Democrats because it would look really bad for Democrats, some Democrats, to not even engage or try to. Because, again, uh, in the black community, this is a big deal to them. This is something that they really care about and feel is uh, unfair. Uh, the, the discrepancy, the disparities. Now, we can disagree on some of that. That doesn't matter. The point is, it matters to them. They care about it. And so this was a big issue to them that Donald Trump was able to kind of get across the finish line, so to speak. He also had people like Kim Kardashian. I know other people just totally trashed that with Kim Kardashian going and helping. But again, she helped to get certain people out of prison, especially this uh, black woman from Alabama, the grandma, who was in there for a nonviolent drug crime. And it did, it, it, his favorability did rise. And that's the thing that I think people don't realize, or, or maybe they're not talking about or just don't know, but his favorability among, amongst blacks is rising. The polls show his approval at 16%. This last one I saw, it's not like the most recent. I would venture to say it's higher than 16%. But I realize that that sounds terrible, right? 16% sounds terrible. But let's put it into context. Thomas Sowell is really the one who put it into context for me. It grabbed my attention. He wrote an article actually back in July of 2016. And during the presidential race, this is what he said. And the way that he said this, he said, black votes matter. If Republicans could get 20% of black votes, the Democrats would be ruined. This is highly unlikely given the approach used by Republicans. However, the point is that Democrats must not only continue to get nine tenths of black votes, they also need to get a high turnout of black voters on election day. And so we saw that actually with Obama. Obama did very well in this area because uh, black voters were motivated to vote for him. And they came out in both elections and it dipped with Hillary Clinton. And, and at the end of, of her um, campaign, you saw more of the Obamas because they were trying to help to get those black voters motivated to come out and vote, even though you know, they, they weren't necessarily going to vote for Donald Trump. Having them not come out and vote did not help at all. And so to give you an idea, during the election, Donald Trump got 8% of the black vote, which I know sounds terrible, but Mitt Romney got 6%. And so his 8%, with his rising favorability of at least 16%, terrifies the Democrats. They're worried. They're worried about this possibility. They're four to try to dissuade people, uh, it, he's got to be a racist. And again, this is my cynical view of kind of what's going on speaking to a certain voting block. But what kind of strengthens my view a little bit of, of this as well comes from another author. His name's Shelby Steele. And he wrote a book in 2015 called, <laughs> the book is, the title is kind of... <laughs> Uh, polarizing as well. Um, I love it. But anyways, it's called Shame, How America's Past Sins Have Polarized Our Country. Really, it's a very compelling argument for why we see certain reactions to race relations today um, and kind of where it comes from. So really briefly though, Steele, 
himself. He is a black American who grew up in segregated America in Chicago in the 1950s. In fact, his elementary school triggered the first desegregation lawsuit in the North. And his family was afraid to cross the threshold of any restaurant until he was almost 20 years old. Therefore, I only tell you this because it gives you the idea that he's lived through this. He, he knows what it was like before, during, and after. And so his opinion uh, should at least carry a little bit more weight. Um, because of all that he has lived through. But despite that, his, his credentials, he does get pushback from liberals when he said the following at a conference in Aspen, Colorado. This was several years ago. And his, the, the sort of reaction he got is kind of uh, the reason why this book was written. And it's a very interesting book. But this is what he said. He said, post-1960s welfare policies the proliferation of identity politics and group preferences, and all the grandiose social interventions of the war on poverty and the great society. All this was meant to redeem the nation from its bigoted past. But paradoxically, it also invited minorities to make an identity and a politics out of the grievance and inferiority. His Part of his point and idea is that the white guilt of people feeling bad for their past racial sins wanted to make up for it and make themselves feel better by putting into place these programs that, that ended up having the unintended consequence of making it worse uh, for um, African Americans, for blacks. And he kind of explains a little bit why, but that wasn't a welcome theory that not only did these programs make it worse, but there is not systemic racism that prevents minorities from moving up. That's his other point. That's not taken too well. <laughs> so his book really explains the origins of white guilt and how it is manifested today, which I believe that this is this call for resignation is, is part of that manifestation of white guilt. And I love the way he takes this phrase, poetic justice, and he adapts it to his own term with a parallel meaning, and he calls it poetic truth. His definition, the way he defines poetic truth, is it disregards the actual truth in order to assert a larger essential truth that supports one's ideological position. It takes the actual truth, seems secondary or irrelevant, and then this is kind of also important, the, po the poetic truth works by moral intimidation rather than by reason, so that even to question them is heresy. So if you, if you want to throw out the idea that, no, you don't believe that there's systemic racism, what you'll get in return is you're racist, and then where do you go from there? You then now have to defend that, no, no, I'm not racist, so now the conversation is not about the idea and and where we can go from here but about how to defend your personality your honor he explains that when poetic truth is in play that facts carry no weight instead it demands moral and political accountability and that's what i think uh we are seeing when it comes to this so we have the black vote 
uh, that's at play and white guilt. And those are both kind of polarizing terms to say and use because, yeah, that can be taken uh, down a different path as well. So that's my cynical view of this sort of barnstorm tactic of denounce and shame. So even if one disagrees with me on my point of view, that's totally fine. I get it. I, however, I hope we can at least agree on a stable path to redemption. The best part of America and what people see it as America, not just the American dream, but really it's, we love the idea of a redemption story. That's what we're about. And here we have these like politicians who are very flawed, yes, but we dig into the past and we expect condemnation and rejection and resignation over some of these things. And, and we don't stop to ask, yeah, but what have they been like since then? That was probably one of my biggest problems with Kavanaugh is, is the lesson that anyone, anyone could walk away from with those Kavanaugh hearings is that whatever you did at 16 and 17, and then you went on to have 35 years of a record of moral behavior is not going to matter. It's, you're not entitled to and worthy. And some people would make the argument that no, it's because of the specific office that makes it so worthy of this scrutiny. Just no, no, disagree. And, and I, I just disagree. So looking at this, I thought about, okay, what kind of solution can I give? And really what came to my mind are our credit scores. I feel like if we follow the path of credit scores and how lenders look to even see whether they should loan us money, okay, because that's a big deal, loaning money. Um, they weigh your honesty by your payment history, and they look at um, you know the variety of a mix of credit that you take out, how much debt level you might have even if you're paying things off but you have huge debt levels that kind of weighs on on things or the length of credit history how long you've had credit for and so if, if they look at all of that to try and figure out how much money to lend at and at what percentage you know maybe why can't we do that <laughs> with our politicians with each other in a sense of having a social credit score. For example, in overcoming financial mistakes, it's different for like the IRS. Sometimes for businesses, they make you keep things for three to six years. Bankruptcy, on the majority, it takes seven years to overcome things where things can just start falling off of your negative credit. So for, those, for that reason, I kind of chose seven years because when it comes to credit scores, that's um, on the uh, majority, that's what they look at the past like seven years. And so the five things that kind of make up your credit scores, payment history, debt level, length of credit history, inquiries, mix of credit, and each of them have different, you know, the highest percentage of what they use is payment history, 35%. So are you paying your bills on time? Um, that's kind of looked at as, okay, uh, the higher your credit score is means that you're doing all of those things right for a length of time. You've, you're proving 
that you're trustworthy and honest. Um, when it comes to, in my opinion, one of the most important things, which is finances, that that really does mean a lot. What's what's also funny, kind of a side note here, is that studies have been done where uh, they look at the credit score histories versus with with couples, and what they find is that women really care about past credit histories of of men and stuff and they feel like that that's an indication of their trustworthiness and level of commitment so when you think about that if someone cares about their personal name by paying off their their debts then you know that 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 does say something about that person and so as credit, as lenders, look at how can I predict someone's behavior? This is kind of what they've come up with to try to figure out, is this person good for lending money? Well, in predicting behavior and looking at people, um, why can't we look just at the past seven years? Why is that not enough to go, this is who the person is today? So for example, um, Alexandria, Ocasio-Cortez, AOC. She's like actually changed her mind on topics several times. Like so, for example, even in college, when she was in economics, she was more on the free market side, but obviously now she's socialism. So one could even look at her and go, look, I know she's professing that right now, but uh, her social credit when it comes to this isn't very strong. So it's we got to wait and see. Does she really believe in this? Or is this where she's at right now? And I think that's a fair assessment. That's actually what they did to Mitt Romney. They felt like with Mitt Romney, I know on the Republican side, that he flip-flopped a lot. And so that made people distrust him. So he wanted to try to prove that no, he was a conservative in certain areas and 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 how he could gain their trust. Donald Trump definitely had no history either way. And some of it was, you know, blind faith, which I know is an oxymoron term, but that's why he gave a list of judges. He gave a list of judges and said, this is the list who I would choose from and only this list. And that actually really clinched a lot of votes for many conservatives because they're trying to figure out what can I put value on that I put value on that they put value on that I trust with uh, combined with their past behavior of what they will or will not do. And that's why you saw a lot of issues with Donald Trump and a voting base because he had no prior history for people to figure out and to count on. And, and that did make things difficult. But going back now, taking you out of the rabbit hole, and going you back to this, think about yourself, your own life, of your own history, of how you have been the last seven years, or, or what did you do? Go get your high school yearbook and see what was written in there by other people, or yourself, or pictures of you, or whatever, and think, do I want to be defined by that? Are the last seven years not enough good behavior? For people to go, this is who I am, this is who you can trust. Credit institutions, that's enough. That's enough for credit institutions to loan people lots of money on low interest rates. And so I think that we should do social credit the same way uh, with each other. It's a good predictor, indicator of who that person is today and who what they might do tomorrow. Now, of course, 
you know, they might violate that trust, right? As that does tend to happen sometimes. Someone who's had good credit might all of a sudden take out a huge loan and not pay it back for whatever reason in their lives. I mean, there are many reasons. So yes, it's definitely possible, but it's a good measure of the person. Going back to Governor Northam, he should be scrutinized for his recent social credit behavioral history. No one has lived a perfect life, and we cannot continue to complain about the crummy people in politics if we continue to denounce and morally shame people for what they did decades ago that wasn't even a crime. We should care about the people that they are today or the recent past uh, more than anything. So in looking at our two things, the voting block, morally shaming the white guilt and voting block is one part of the equation. But really what I kind of care about most is Hey, the path forward to redemption. Let's give people something that they can count on, that they know if I've been a good person for this amount of time, I'm hoping that you can see that that is who I am now and not not continue to blame me for what I did, the stupid things I did long ago. Now, I, I do admit the bigger issue brewing when it comes to this tactic is about the possible vacancy of the Supreme Court justice by Justice Ginsburg. But that is another topic for another time.